Well, as we continue to worship this morning, I invite you to turn in your Bibles to 1 John chapter 1. We are back in the book of 1 John this morning. We are going to consider in our time together verses 2 and 3. What a glorious song for us to sing there, how firm a foundation, it's one of my favorite hymns, Uh, just that last line that Jesus will not forsake our soul to hell, what a beautiful truth, what a beautiful reality to sing about, I'm so thankful for the gospel and what Christ has done for us, and it's because of him that we come, it's the word that's laid as a foundation And this morning, as we get into 1 John chapter 1, verses 2 through 3, we're going to see that that foundation of the Word of God is built upon the apostles and the prophets. And so as you turn in your copy of God's Word to 1 John chapter 1, let us turn to the Lord one more time in a word of prayer and declare our dependence on Him in all things, especially as we desire for Him to transform us by His Word. Let's pray. We are so thankful this morning that we can gather. We are so thankful that the Word of God has been passed down to us through generation to generation. That Word which was once testified to by the holy apostles who were first-hand witnesses to the life and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ. That they pen for us the reality of who Jesus is and what He accomplished on the cross for those who believe. What a glorious truth we have before us this morning. God did not leave us in the dark, but He gave us a means to know His will. Even as we sing, Father, not my will, but Your will be done, we know that God's will is contained within the Holy Scripture. And so, Father, would you be with us this morning as we seek to unpack this truth in 1 John chapter 1, and would you impress it upon our hearts, may we take confidence in and stand firm upon the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the cornerstone. We're so thankful for it, and we pray this in your son's name, amen. Well, this morning we find ourselves back in John's first letter to the churches, And it seems like we've covered a lot of ground, although we may not have covered a lot of verses. We've seen so far that John has presented to us the main subject of his letter, which is the word of life. In addition to that, we've also seen that this word of life was the pre-existent one, as well as the one who existed within history. That word of life is Jesus Christ, the Son of God, fully God and fully man, united in one person. And this matters to us. It matters for the history of redemption. You see, if Jesus was not fully man... He could not have atoned for the sins of mankind. But also, if Jesus was not fully God, He could not have atoned for the sins of mankind. But Jesus was both. And therefore, His life, 
His sacrifice and even His resurrection are eternally effective. And this God-man was made manifest to the world and was particularly seen and heard and touched by John and the rest of the apostles. We saw that last time we were together that John himself is bringing to our attention the reality of this man Jesus Christ who was a physical person and yet was also God in the flesh. And then we heard from Paul Corona concerning Jesus as the better messenger. If you recall from two weeks ago, Paul expounded Hebrews 1, 1-3, which presented to us Jesus as God's final word in these last days. Let me read to you Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1-4, through just to refresh your memory this morning. It says this, long ago, at many times and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, He has spoken to us by His Son, whom He appointed the heir of all things, through whom also He created the world. He is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of His nature. And He upholds the universe by the word of His power. After making purification for sins, he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become as much superior to the angels as the name he has inherited is more excellent than theirs. You see, beloved, as Paul pointed out, Jesus is the better messenger because Jesus is God and therefore bears directly the message of God. God used to speak in various ways, but now He speaks through His Son. But this leads us then to a very important question. How does He do that? How does God speak to us through Jesus Christ? Does Jesus speak directly to us like a booming voice from the heavens? like we see in Matthew chapter 1, verse 11? Or does Jesus speak to us in a still, small voice that whispers to us in our inner consciences? Or does Jesus supernaturally appear before us to directly counsel us in His holy will? No, Jesus does not speak to us today in any of those ways. Jesus speaks to us through a particular means. And we find that means this morning in our text in 1 John chapter 1. I trust that you have turned there in your Bibles. Let us read together verses 1 through 4, just so we can get the context of what's happening. And then we will focus our time in this morning on verses 2 and 3. 1 John chapter 1 verse 1 says this, That which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands, concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, 
which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son. And we are writing these things to you so that our joy may be complete. What this text proposes to us this morning, brothers and sisters, and what I hope to prove over the next two weeks, is that Jesus is God's final word, and that we receive that word through the writings of the apostles and the prophets. Let me say that one more time because each word is significant and purposeful within that statement. How does God speak to us in this modern age? Jesus is God's final word. And we receive that word through the writings of the apostles and the prophets. Now, in order to see this, let us try to answer two questions concerning this text. The first, which we will take this week, is who speaks for Jesus? And the second, which we will look at next week, Lord willing, is how do they speak? So the first question I'd like to take up this morning with you in 1 John chapter 1, verse 2, if you're following along in the insert in your bulletin, is this. Who speaks for Jesus? Who speaks for Jesus? Now the answer to this question is both important and nuanced. Important because it determines our adherence to Orthodox Christianity. Nuanced because like most things in the Bible, the answer is not simplistic. That is to say that there is not just one aspect to the answer, but instead the answer is multifaceted. Let me ask the question again, through whom does God speak to us? The answer, God speaks by His Son through His apostles and prophets as the Holy Spirit inspires them to write God's own mind and God's own heart. Now we find this definition in most orthodox evangelical confessions of faith. For example, take our own, that is the Bible Fellowship Church, Articles of Faith, Article 1-2 on the Holy Scriptures. It says this, Inspiration is a special act of the Holy Spirit by which He guided the writers of the Scriptures so that their words would convey the thoughts he wished conveyed, would bear a proper relationship to the thoughts of the other inspired books, and would be kept free from error of fact, doctrine, and judgment. This statement of faith is based on 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and 21. I'm sure you are familiar with it, and if not, maybe you'd like to jot it down. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 says this, Knowing this first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture comes from someone's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever produced by the will of man, but men spoke from God, 
as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. What we learn is that in the process of inspiration, the Holy Spirit of God moved within the authors of scriptures so that they used their own style and personality to pen the very words that God desired to preserve for you and for me. Louis Burkhoff, in his classic treatment on systematic theology, says this about inspiration. And you can find the quote on the insert in your bulletin. He says this, The proper conception of inspiration holds that the Holy Spirit acted on the writers of the Bible in an organic way, in harmony with the laws of their own inner being using them just as they were with their character and temperament, their gifts and talents, their education and culture, their vocabulary and style. The Holy Spirit illumined their minds, aided their memory, prompted them to write, repressed the influence of sin on their writings, and guided them in the expression of their thoughts, even to the choice of their words. Brothers and sisters, the prophets and the apostles are God's given means by which He communicates His plan of redemption and preserves the testimony of His Son Jesus Christ, who is the final word to men concerning our salvation from sin. God spoke concerning Jesus Christ by the Holy Spirit, through the prophets and the apostles. We see this again in a passage like Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19. It says this, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus Himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. You see, Jesus is the cornerstone. That is, that He holds all of Revelation together. And the apostles and the prophets are the foundation of the church because the prophets foretold of Jesus' ministry and the apostles were, hear this, first-hand witnesses to Jesus' ministry. We see this in two ways in our text for this morning in 1 John chapter 1, verse 2. We see, again, if you're following along in the insert in your bulletin, that the apostles were first-hand witnesses to Jesus' ministry. First-hand witnesses to Jesus' ministry. We see this in 1 John and his use of the first person plural pronoun. Let's read through this text again. And what I want you to do is notice how often John refers to himself in the first person plural pronoun we. Notice it, 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. That which was from the beginning which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon, 
and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it, and testify to it, and proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim to you also, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. John includes himself within a group of individuals who personally witnessed Jesus' ministry and then proclaimed that witness to us. Now there's an obvious and important question here, so obvious that it might get overlooked. And the question is this, who is John referring to with the pronoun we? Who heard, and who saw, and who touched with their hands? To whom was the word of life made manifest? Who proclaims that word of life, and with whom do we have fellowship when we receive it? The answer is the apostles. It was John and the apostles who heard, and saw, and handled Jesus of Nazareth. It was John and the apostles who gave testimony to and proclaimed Jesus as the word of life. It was John and the apostles with whom we have fellowship and therefore have fellowship with God the Father and Jesus Christ the Son. Notice that John does not say, I saw and I heard and I touched and I proclaim, but We, the apostles, were the ones who were commissioned to speak on God's behalf. Because John and the apostles were first-hand witnesses to the life and teachings of Jesus. This passage does not just refer to anyone. It refers to those who Jesus chose early on in his ministry, and had a front row seat to his ways and his works. We did not have a front row seat to Jesus' ministry. The twelve had a front row seat to Jesus' ministry. And that is who John is referring to in this passage in the first person plural pronoun. But we also know this a second way. John calls himself in this text, along with the other apostles, testifiers who proclaim the word of life in the middle of verse 2. Notice it with me. 1 John chapter 1, verse 2 says this. The life was made manifest, and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaim to you the eternal life. These two words, testify and proclaim, are interesting because for the original audience, they would have had an official tone to them and would have conjured up scenes of the courtroom. Let's look at the first word this morning. That word, testify, comes from the Greek word, martis. 
A word which may sound familiar to you because we get our English word martyr from this Greek word martis. And the word martis means to be a witness, especially a witness in a courtroom. The Theological Dictionary of the New Testament said this concerning this word. It says, the martis would have had, would have, would thus be one who remembers and can tell about something that they witnessed. The proper sphere of the terms, that is these terms, martis, is the legal one. For example, in trials or legal transactions. What is signified by this word is personal testimony to events, relations, persons, etc. John and the apostles were first-hand witnesses of the Lord Jesus Christ, and therefore, hear this, had the authority to speak directly on the validity of Jesus' personhood and His ministry. They testified to the reality of what they saw and heard and touched as much as a witness testifies in a courtroom to what they heard and what they see. The second word that we find in this text that points to this reality of the apostles being first-hand witnesses is the word proclaim in the middle of verse 2. Again, this word was found within an official setting and it means to give a report. We see it used several times throughout the Gospels, but especially within the writings of Luke. Notice with me Luke chapter 8, verse 33, which you can find on the insert in your bulletin, or if you'd like to turn there, you can turn there as well. Luke chapter 8, verse 33, where we see this word to proclaim used, says this, then the demons came out of the man and entered the pigs. And the herd rushed down the steep bank into the lake and drowned. Verse 34. When the herdsmen saw what had happened, they fled and told or reported in the city and in the country. Then people went out to see what had happened and they came to Jesus and found the man from whom the demons had gone, sitting at the feet of Jesus, clothed and in his right mind, and they were afraid. Verse 36. And those who had seen it told or reported to them how the demon-possessed man had been healed. And so what John does here in the middle of verse 2 is he sets up the apostles, himself included, as official reporters of what they saw firsthand within the ministry and life and teachings of Jesus. You see, what we have to understand this morning is that John is not telling a story here that was passed down through generation to generation. John is giving us 
what he saw directly and what he heard directly and what he taught, touched directly concerning the word of life. This gives John and the other apostles the official position to declare God's will to the world. John MacArthur, in his commentary on this passage, says this, and again, you can find the quote on the insert in your bulletin. He says, For John, that which was manifested to him, the word of life, became the basis for his proclamation of truth. His privileged life in the presence of the Lord Christ was not a private experience to elevate him above others who were not so blessed, as if he were somehow one of God's favorite sons. Rather, his privilege became the platform for his responsibility and mandate as an apostle and eyewitness, to bear witness, that is to testify of the truth, and proclaim the gift of eternal life in Him to those including His readers who had never seen Jesus. Because of His widespread reputation as one who had been with Jesus as an apostle, John was a true and credible witness. Other New Testament books written by apostles or their associates also present eyewitness accounts of Jesus and the truth of the gospel. The gospels do that, as do the books of Acts and the epistles. You see, what we have to understand this morning is that what we find in the Bible are not fairy tales. They are historic accounts of John and the other apostles' interactions with this man called Jesus. And they wrote them down in order that we might have those very historical accounts for us today. The apostles speak with authority because they speak as those who were with Jesus at every moment of his life and ministry. Now we see the importance of this first-hand witness report when we see the disciples themselves seeking to choose another apostle in the book of Acts after Judas betrayed Jesus. Turn with me now to Acts chapter 1. Acts chapter 1, where we see in our passage that a requirement to be an apostle of Jesus Christ is to be a first-hand witness of Jesus' life and ministry. First, or, sorry, Acts chapter 1, verse 12 says this, Then they returned to Jerusalem from the mount called Olivet, which is near Jerusalem, a Sabbath day's journey away. And when they had entered, they went up to the upper room where they were staying. Peter and John, and James and Andrew, Philip and Thomas, Bartholomew and Matthew, James the son of Alphaeus, and Simon the zealot, and Judas 
the son of James. All these with one accord were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. Verse 15, in those days Peter stood up among the brothers. The company of persons was in all about 120 and said, brothers, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit spoke beforehand by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. For he was numbered among us and was allotted his share in this ministry. Verse 18. Now this man acquired a field with the reward of his wickedness and falling headlong, he burst open in the middle and all his bowels gushed out. It's kind of graphic. And it became known to all the inhabitants of Jerusalem so that the field was called in their own language Al-Kadama, that is, field of blood. For it is written in the book of Psalms, May his camp become desolate, and let there be no one to dwell in it, and let another take his office. Verse 21. So one of the men who have accompanied us during all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us, beginning from the baptism of John, until the day when he was taken up from us, one of these men must become with us, what? A witness to his resurrection. And they put forward too, Joseph called Barabbas, who was called Justice and Matthias. And they prayed and said, You, Lord, who knows the hearts of all men, show which one of these two you have chosen to take the place in this ministry and apostleship, from which Judas turned aside to go to his own place. And they cast lots, and the lot fell on Matthias, and he was numbered with the eleven apostles. What we learn from this is that the apostles were particularly chosen to give testimony to the ministry of Jesus Because they were eyewitnesses of his life, his death, his resurrection, and his ascension. And therefore, they could give a direct report to the people. And therefore, to us today. Of who Jesus was, what Jesus did, and what Jesus taught. Because they were with him from the beginning. And in selecting the twelfth man, that is, the twelfth apostle, he had to fit this qualification as well. But we not only see the importance of this from the apostles in Acts chapter 1, we see the importance of this from Jesus himself. Turn with me, if you would, over to John chapter 15, verse 26. This passage is found within the larger context of what is called the Upper Room Discourse. It is in this passage of Scripture where Jesus is alone with His twelve disciples and He is giving them His final instruction before He is betrayed by Judas, abandoned by the rest of the twelve, and crucified for the sins of the world. 
John chapter 15, verse 26 says this, But when the Helper comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, the Spirit of truth, who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about Me. Verse 27, And you also will bear witness. Why? Because you have been with Me from the beginning. What we find in John chapter 15 is essentially the two witnesses that are going to confirm the reality of Jesus Christ. The first being the Spirit of God who will come as Jesus sends Him and do His ministry of what verse uh, 8 of chapter 16 says in John chapter 16. When He comes, He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. When Jesus ascended to the Father, He sent His Holy Spirit in order to affect the internal testimony of the Spirit in the hearts of men. But there's also an external testimony. And that is the testimony from those who had been with Jesus from the beginning. Notice it again in verse 27 of chapter 15. You also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. What we see here is the testimony of two witnesses to the ministry and reality of the Lord Jesus Christ. The Spirit and the apostles in one confirm who Jesus Christ is in the hearts of men. One internally and the other externally. When John says that what we have seen and heard and touched and we testify and proclaim to you, he is saying that John and the apostles are the ones and the only ones who are commissioned by God to bring the authoritative message of salvation to the world. Everyone else must speak in submission to their testimony. And therefore, they must speak in submission to the Word of God. We asked this question at the outset. Who is it that speaks for God? Who has the authority to speak directly for the Lord Jesus Christ? It is those who were commissioned by the Lord Jesus Christ and were first-hand witnesses to His power and grace in His earthly ministry. Now there's a very obvious application to this for us in this 21st century church. Who speaks directly for God? The apostles and the prophets. And who are the apostles and the prophets? It is those who had a direct commission from God to speak on His behalf. And as far as the apostles go, it is those who had a first-hand witness of Jesus' ministry. Do you know anyone who personally had a first-hand witness to Jesus' earthly ministry. 
I can help you out with this one. The answer is no. So then, how does God speak authoritatively in the church today? It's through the testimony of the apostles and the prophets, which we will see next week is the, the written Word of God. Beloved, hear this. There are no modern-day prophets. There are no modern-day apostles. Because they lack a very important qualification of being an official apostle. They did not walk with Jesus. They did not talk with Jesus firsthand. They did not see Jesus with their own eyes or hear Jesus with their own ears or touch Jesus with their own hands. This privilege and right was reserved specifically for John and the, and the apostles. Beloved, hear this and be sure of it. The prophets of the Old Testament and the apostles of the New are the only ones who have been given this authority to speak directly for God. There is no one in the world today who speaks on behalf of God unless they faithfully declare the testimony of John and the rest of the apostles. God no longer speaks directly to men. No, He speaks through the means of the testimony and the report of His holy apostles. Chosen specifically by Christ to bear His official message to the world. But notice with me from the text the reason that John testifies. It's so that we too might enjoy the reality of who Jesus Christ is. Beloved, just because the apostles were first-hand witnesses, it does not mean that we cannot have the same kind of fellowship with Jesus that John and the apostles had. We just have it through the God-ordained means of the Word of God. Notice that John says here in the text that if you have fellowship with us, then you have fellowship with the Father and you have fellowship with His Son, Jesus Christ. Not only do we see that the apostles are first-hand witnesses in this text, but we also see that fellowship with them is fellowship with the Father and with the Son. Notice it in 1 John chapter 1, verse 3. He says, That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that, purpose clause, so that you too may have fellowship with us, and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. This word for fellowship here is the word uh, koinonia. It's a familiar word to many of us. It means to share in or participate with. John says here that you can share in John's experience of Jesus. That you can personally participate in what he personally participated in as you expose yourself to his written testimony of Jesus' life. Just because we are removed 
2,000 years from Jesus' life and ministry does not mean that we cannot have deep personal fellowship with the Lord Jesus Christ. We can share in Jesus' life as well. We can sit down and read concerning Jesus' power to perform miracles. We can see with our eyes and hear with our ears the compassion that Jesus had for the lowly and downtrodden. We can see with our eyes and hear with our ears even the condemnation that Jesus calls down upon those who take advantage of others. We have the privilege, beloved, of seeing and hearing and even witnessing, although secondhand, the person and work of Jesus Christ because of the apostles. It is not as if the apostles were some super-Christians They had faults just like us, but they were God's means to preserve the testimony of the life, person, and teachings of Jesus so that we too might experience them. Beloved, if you want to see Jesus this morning, if you want to hear His words, or you want to experience His love and comfort, then pick up and read this book. Sit down with Jesus in the morning and read of John or Mark or Matthew or Luke's account of His life and His ministry. And you too can personally experience the Lord Jesus Christ through the means that God has given us. You see, God does speak to us today, but He does so through His written Word of God. And that's where we will go next week, Lord willing. Let us pray together.